Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At midnight on October 3rd, 1990, fireworks exploded outside the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, Germany. Over a million people danced and celebrated the rebirth of a country as the German flag was raised and the country's new anthem played triumphantly. East and West Germany were officially reunited after 45 years of Cold War separation. It was the dramatic climax of a dizzying year of change that began when border crossings along the Berlin Wall were flung open, finally allowing friends and family who'd been divided by the concrete barrier to reunite. The nightmare of their forced separation was finally over. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s. On this episode, we're looking back at the year that led to the reunification of Germany and the first signs of thawing in the Cold War. Before we dive in, let's start off with a quick history lesson. After the Second World War, Germany was divided. The Allied powers occupied the West and the Soviets the East. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Berlin, which was located in the Soviet zone, was also divided. Over the next 20 years, as East Germany became more and more oppressive, a mass exodus of citizens left the country. Between 1949 and 1961, about 2.6 million East Germans headed west to start a new life. Many of them were skilled workers, intellectuals, and professionals. The Soviets responded by shutting down the border. On August 13, 1961, as Berliners slept, an army of construction workers erected concrete posts and barbed wire. Those who woke up in a fortified East Berlin would remain there for the next 28 years. What began as barbed wire fence policed by armed guards was soon fortified with concrete and guard towers. It completely encircled West Berlin, separating Berliners on both sides from their families, their jobs, and the lives they had known before. When completed, the wall was 155 kilometers long and four meters tall, it cut the city of Berlin in half, in some cases going right through homes. A second wall was built on the east side, and the space between the two walls became known as the Death Strip. That's because East German border guards had strict orders to shoot to kill anyone who tried to escape to the west. And that's what they did. About 140 people were gunned down while trying to escape, including 17-year-old Hans Wolf. He climbed a two-and-a-half-meter-high barbed wire fence and then jumped into the icy cold waters of the Britzerswig Canal on November 26, 1964. He probably hoped that border guards wouldn't be paying attention. I mean, who was crazy enough to attempt an escape through the freezing water? But the border guard stationed nearby spotted him, and without warning, they began shooting. He called out to the guards, begging them to stop, saying he would surrender, but they carried on, firing a total of 61 shots. One hit Wolf in the chest and killed him. 
His parents didn't learn of their son's death until two days after his failed escape attempt. The official message they were given was he had accidentally drowned while violating the state border. Thousands of other people did make it across in all kinds of crazy ways. Some crawled through tunnels. One person even made it in a hot air balloon. And others escaped through apartment buildings that in a few places actually made up part of the wall. You see, at first people could simply enter one of these buildings, walk out a back door or window, and they were in West Berlin. But as the government caught on, all exits on the lower floors were bricked up. And that's when people began jumping from second and third story windows, usually into blankets being held by West Berliners below. Eventually, these escape routes were also bricked over. By the 1980s, the Berlin Wall had become a vivid and enduring symbol of Soviet oppression and a symbol of the tense relationship between East and West that extended well beyond Germany's borders during the Cold War. But things began to change under Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who introduced perestroika and set about reforming the Soviet economy and communist regime. Under Gorbachev, the Soviet Union began to loosen its grip on Eastern Bloc nations. And Gorbachev also began reaching out to the West. It was following a meeting about a possible arms reduction treaty in 1987 between Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan that the U.S. president made his infamous speech near the Berlin Wall in front of the famous Brandenburg Gates. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, If you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This moment and this speech have often been cited as the beginning of the end of the Cold War and the driving force behind the destruction of the Berlin Wall. But that's probably a bit of revisionist history. At the time it was given, Reagan's speech actually didn't get a lot of media coverage. And Western foreign affairs experts viewed it as misguided idealism on Reagan's part while the Soviet news agency TASS called it openly provocative and warmongering. Gorbachev himself has also said he wasn't impressed with the former actor's rousing call to action. It's really only in hindsight, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that people began viewing Reagan's speech as a harbinger of the changes that would soon sweep across Eastern Europe. So if it wasn't Reagan, what caused this seismic shift? In the end, it came from the ground up. Protest movements led by the people of East Germany pressured the government to finally open the barriers to the West and ultimately bring down the wall. It began in the summer and fall of 1989. Thousands of people were taking part in pro-democracy protests throughout Germany as a fast-moving revolutionary wave was sweeping across Eastern Bloc nations. In East Germany, the epicenter was Leipzig. Every Monday evening, thousands of people would turn out to march under the banner, We Are the People, 
chanting freedom and free elections. Each week, the size of the demonstrations grew. Then on October 9th, 70,000 people, the largest crowd yet, gathered for a peaceful protest in Karl Marx Platz in Leipzig. Just after 6 p.m., teenagers, families, workers, and retirees filled the square. It was a risky move. There had not been such a huge rally in decades, and anti-regime protests were prohibited by law. Many of those who turned out were deeply worried about what would happen. With tanks and soldiers standing by, some feared police might open fire. Keep in mind, the deadly protest in Beijing's Tiananmen Square had taken place just six months earlier in March 1989. Shockingly, though, the East German leadership chose not to act. The protest was allowed to proceed with crowds streaming through the center of town past the regional office of the country's secret police, the Stasi. For many, this was seen as the beginning of the end of East Germany. A month later, on November 4th, 1989, a half million people marched into East Berlin's main square, the Alexanderplatz. It was the largest demonstration in the oppressive state's history and was the catalyst for its demise just four days later. On November 8th, 1989, as political pressure built in East Germany, the spokesman for East Berlin's Communist Party, Gunter Schabowski, headed to a media briefing with reporters. What happened next immediately brought down the once formidable Berlin Wall. But the funny thing is, it was kind of an accident. Let me explain. The media briefing was carried live on TV. And if you watch the footage now, you can see most of the reporters look a little bit bored. They weren't expecting the bombshell that was to come. Also, Privatreisen nach dem Ausland können ohne Vorliegen Shabowski begins reading a prepared statement and casually announces that the government has decided to introduce a bill which will allow every citizen to travel out of East Germany by way of border crossing points. With those words, a reporter snaps back to attention and he asks, when does this come into force? Shabowski was clearly caught off guard. He doesn't know when. He flips through his papers. He looks through his reading glasses. And then he says, As far as I'm aware, immediately, straight away. The thing is, he was wrong. It wasn't immediately. It was supposed to be the next day. Police and border guards knew nothing of the changes. But remember, the news conference was being carried live on TV, and news of the announcement spread quickly. So East and West Berliners flocked to the wall, drinking beer and champagne and chanting Tor Ulf, open the gate. Finally, at midnight on November 9th, 1989, guards threw open the gates. And East Berliners began pouring across the border. They came by foot and by car. A column of tiny, two-cylinder East German cars rolled into the West. The scene was jubilant. People cried and cheered as they entered West Germany, either for the first time ever or the first time in 28 years. They were met on the other side by West Germans who greeted them with flowers and champagne. Strangers hugged and kissed. 
Then together, East and West Berliners climbed on top of the Berlin Wall in front of the Brandenburg Gate to dance and to celebrate. While chanting, the wall is gone, people used hammers and picks to knock away chunks of the wall. That weekend, more than two million East Berliners streamed into West Berlin through the iconic Checkpoint Charlie. It's probably the most well-known Cold War border crossing, which served for 28 years as the only spot where foreigners could enter the Soviet-controlled East Berlin. But now it served as a gateway to a massive celebration that was described by at least one journalist as the greatest street party in the history of the world. On their way through the checkpoint, each East Berliner was given 100 West German marks as a welcome gift. They poured across the border on foot, in cars, or on packed subways. I was just amazed that uh, that it came so soon. I mean, just, uh, it's incredible. This morning, authorities at crossing points were rendered virtually helpless by the size of the crowd still streaming across. Some came west to stay. Others came just to look around for a couple of hours before going back to their homes in East Berlin. Officials say the wall itself will remain standing for military security, but it's now little more than a symbol. At one point this morning, some civilians offered flowers to East German border guards. In the past, they would have been shot for such a gesture, or at least imprisoned. On Saturday afternoon, two days after the border was opened, an impromptu free concert was held to celebrate. Joe Cocker, Melissa Etheridge, and Canadian musician Andrew Cash joined 16 German pop groups at Deutschland Hall. Cash was on tour promoting his second solo album as the opening act for Etheridge. And halfway through their European tour, fate brought them to Berlin the very night that the wall was opened. Me and one of my bandmates immediately went, uh, headed to Checkpoint Charlie, which is, I think we heard that that was where a lot of East Berliners were, were coming through. And I don't remember the bar, but there was a bar situated conveniently right at the checkpoint. And we went in there and <laughs> we went in there uh, at probably about two in the afternoon and ended up getting out of there at about two in the morning. It was it was an incredible scene in there. You just people, people walk, well, you know, people walk in through the checkpoint and head into the bar. <laughs> and that was their first time into, into West Berlin. Some of them since they were children, and and you know they they'd be many times just people just come up and hug me, right? You know, and just I mean we had just arrived there ourselves, right? But people were just so overwhelmed. Uh, It was incredible. Cash thought taking part in the impromptu concert was an equally moving experience. He sang his signature song, Time and Place, which was a perfect addition to the show. It's a song about holding out for something better, about having hope for the future. Cash, who left music for politics in 2011 when he became an NDP MP for a Toronto-area riding, says that weekend was one of the most remarkable of his life. The fall of the wall and then the release of Nelson Mandela in 1990 taught him something very important. These events certainly reaffirmed my commitment and understanding of how change happens. Uh, It happens gradually, uh, but it happens as a result of 
a million different factors and and people being uh, faithful and resilient and never stopping the tide of, uh, you know, of social justice and freedom. The tide of freedom in Germany continued to swell over the next few weeks. Refugees poured into West Germany at a rate of 2,000 a day. Emergency shelters were overflowing with tens of thousands of East Germans who wanted to make a new home in the West. During the Cold War, life on either side of the wall was very different. West Germany was thriving economically, and West Berlin was no exception. Theaters, zoos, museums, shops, and nightclubs all lined the main streets of West Berlin. In East Germany, on the other hand, the economy was depressed by the loss of so many educated professionals. Most buildings were drab, gray, and nearly identical to each other. Citizens could afford very few luxuries, and even if they could, food and other consumer items were extremely scarce. For example, in the winter, East Germans might be able to buy a single kilo of bananas or oranges. That's it, one kilo for the whole winter. And if they wanted to buy a car, there was at least a 10-year waiting list. The car they would get was a two-cylinder Trabant. The Trabi was built in East Germany and possessed roughly the same horsepower as a go-kart. For some, well, the little Trabi symbolized everything that was wrong with communism. But the economic and aesthetic conditions weren't the worst problems. It was the atmosphere of fear that drove so many East Germans to flee. No one could be certain who was a member or an informant for the Stasi, the dreaded secret police. People were regularly taken in for questioning and often jailed for speaking out against the government, or even if a neighbor simply claimed that they had spoken out. So it's no surprise that once the border was open, East Germans flocked to the other side, even just to take a look. To handle the flow 48 hours after the wall opened, 10 new crossing points were added. The East German government also formally abolished the death strip, where would-be escapers had once been shot by border guards. Those border guards were now given the job of removing the rolls of barbed wire that lined the infamous section of the wall. When the party was over, politicians began the difficult task of figuring out the future for the two Germanys, trying to figure out how in the world you merge a generation of capitalism with a generation of socialism. By the end of the month, a mere 20 days after the border had been flung open, West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl answered the question. He proposed a 10-step plan to slowly bring the two countries closer together, eventually leading to a new, united Germany. The majority of West Germans were on board with the plan, but Allied countries were a bit fearful of a unified Germany. Those World War II wounds were still fresh for some. Chancellor Kohl tried to put those fears to rest by promising that a single Germany would never be a threat again. Instead, it would help unite all of Europe. As for East Germany, well, the leaders there said reunification wasn't even on the table. But they said they'd be happy to discuss closer cooperation with the West. Some East German citizens were also leery because with communism also came an extensive benefit system they didn't necessarily want to lose completely. For example, rent in West Germany for a basic one-bedroom apartment in 1990 was about seven to $900 a month. In East Germany, the same apartment would cost about $10 a month. 
political chaos in the East continued for weeks after the wall came down. In Dresden one night, a junior Soviet officer was working at the local KGB headquarters when the building was swarmed by protesters. He called the headquarters of a Red Army tank unit to ask for protection, but he was told they couldn't do anything without orders from Moscow. And Moscow was silent, so the Red Army tanks would not be used for protection. The young officer and his KGB colleagues took matters into their own hands. They frantically burned evidence of their intelligence work. The protesters eventually backed down, but the experience taught the officer lessons he has never forgotten to this day. It gave him ideas for a model society and shaped his ambitions for a powerful network and personal wealth. Who was that junior officer? Well, it was none other than Vladimir Putin. The tides of change continued sweeping through Germany. Then on December 23rd, just six weeks after the border was first thrown open, another major milestone. For the first time in 28 years, the Brandenburg Gate, the supreme symbol of Berlin, was reopened. The neoclassical gate was built in 1791 as one of 13 city gates, and it was the crowning ornament at the end of the boulevard that ran from the Kaiser's Palace. But since the building of the Berlin Wall, neither East nor West Berliners had access to it. The night before the gate was reopened, a crowd of people gathered to watch as massive sections of concrete were taken away by crane to make two new crossing points. The next day, tens of thousands of jubilant Berliners stood in the pouring rain and cheered as the gate was officially opened as a pedestrian crossing. But all this celebrating was starting to take its toll. By early 1990, West Berlin was littered with garbage. Roads were jammed as the population would often double on the weekends with visiting East Berliners. And there was the constant sound of chipping and clanging as people used pickaxes and hammers to take away bits of the Berlin Wall. There were human-sized holes in the wall, like crude doors, and people could step in and out of them, crossing back and forth with ease from east to west. But soon it became a safety issue. People had chopped away so many sections that parts of the wall were in danger of collapsing. East German border guards welded steel bars over gaping holes to shore up the wall. Sadly, a slab of the wall did tip over, and a 14-year-old boy was crushed as he was chipping away at it. A short time later, work crews with heavy equipment finally began tearing down the remainder of the wall. With the wall down, change moved fast through East Germany in 1990. By March, East Germans voted in their first free election in over 50 years. And they came out in droves, with 93% of the country's 12 million people casting ballots in what was essentially a referendum on reunification. The choices were stick with the Communist Party, which wanted cooperation with the West but not reunification, or vote for a conservative alliance of three parties who supported reunification. The result was overwhelmingly in favor of the conservative alliance and reunification with the West, essentially spelling an end to the East German state. It was the final victory for the peaceful revolution. By May 1990, the two Germanys signed a treaty for an economic union, setting them on a path toward a single nation. The treaty formally scrapped East Germany's communist system and created a single German economy. It transferred West Germany's robust currency and its economic, monetary, and social laws to the East as of July 1st. 
At the same time, all border controls around West Berlin would end. East Germany was transformed from a socialist society to a capitalist society. It was the last and final step before a unified Germany was born. Before we get there, there's somewhere else I want to go. I want to talk about the concert that is ingrained in our memories when we think of the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was a rock tribute to a historical watershed where art took over reality and it was all led by former Pink Floyd frontman Roger Waters. For one night only on July 21st, No Man's Land between Potsdamer Platz and the Brandenburg Gate became the set for a legendary performance of Pink Floyd's The Wall. The barren land between the two former countries was left abandoned for such a long time that when they decided to clean it up for the concert, they found bombs, grenades, and live gun shells in the area. Hours before the concert was to start, people were jammed in as far as you could see. Nearby rooftops were packed as well. The organizers had sold 160,000 tickets, but the crowds outside got so big that worried organizers took down the fences, allowing 160,000 more people in without tickets. It's estimated that about 350,000 people attended the concert in person, but it was broadcast to more than 500 million people around the world. The stage, which was perpendicular to the Berlin Wall, featured a massive wall made up of 2,500 foam bricks. It was 170 meters long and 25 meters high. From the opening moments when hundreds of toy soldiers hanging from mini parachutes floated to the ground, the crowd was mesmerized. There were military trucks, motorbikes, limousines, and the marching band of the combined Soviet forces in Germany. Roger Waters was joined by a guest list that included musicians like Van Morrison, Sinead O'Connor, Cyndi Lauper, Joni Mitchell, and Brian Adams. The crowd was swept up. They knew they were experiencing history. The grand finale came when the massive wall came crashing down along with a blinding display of pyrotechnics. After this epic concert in the heart of Berlin, it was back to work for politicians. On August 22, 1990, the East German parliament voted in favor of acceding to West Germany. But before the two countries united, there was one more hurdle they wanted to clear, and it was a big one. A united Germany wanted to be readmitted to NATO. The Soviet Union was initially against the idea, but during last-minute negotiations, changed its mind. The USSR, along with the US, Britain, and France, agreed to reverse the division of Germany and reunite. Germany was allowed to become a full member of NATO, with the condition that it never have an army with more than 370,000 soldiers. And they were not allowed to have nuclear weapons. And so the path was completely cleared. On October 30th, 1990, at midnight, East Germany formally joined West Germany and ceased to exist. (laughs) 
The celebrations that night were more organized than the impromptu euphoria that took place less than a year earlier when the Berlin Wall was opened. But the event was no less important. Under a bright moon, hundreds of thousands of Germans gathered outside the legislative building and sang the new unified German national anthem. It no longer included a verse which declared Germany above all in the world. Instead, it urged Germany to flourish and called for justice, unity, and peace. Since reunification, Germany has become Europe's most industrialized and populous country. Today, Germany is known as an economic giant. But the economy in the East has never managed to catch up with the West. And recent studies found that half of all Germans believe there are still some pretty big differences between the East and the West, mainly money. People in the East tend to earn half as much as people in the West. Experts say it will take at least another generation before the two parts have truly grown back together. As far as the Berlin Wall goes, well, parts of the wall still stand today in Berlin. Plus, there's a Berlin Wall Memorial, and pieces of the wall have been sent to places around the world. And surprisingly, there are some pieces that have been hidden from view, which have been found in recent years. In June 2018, several locals on a walking tour found a 20-meter section of the crumbling Berlin Wall covered in graffiti. The relic had been covered by overgrown bushes, which is how it had escaped discovery for so long. Thank you for joining me on this look back at the events that led up to one of the most important moments of the 1990s. I'd love to hear from you about what you think about this episode and also what you think are some important moments from the 90s. Please email me anytime at 90s at curiouscast.ca. I see all your emails and try to answer when I can. That's 90s at curiouscast.ca. You can also reach me through Twitter at 1990shistory, and I'm on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at curiouscast.ca. This show was hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velazquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.